Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about two movies that you can stream from home right now. One of them is The Lovebirds. That's the new comedy starring uh, Issa Rae and Kamel Nanjiani. And the other one is Capone, featuring Tom Hardy as the legendary gangster Al Capone. Welcome to Film Club. Uh, hey, Katie, how you doing? I'm doing pretty okay. Uh, what about you? I, I need a change of scenery, I think. It's not the solitude. It's the looking at the same wall every day that's starting to get to me. Just a different place to be by yourself. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be nice, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I cope, I cope pretty well with all this, to be honest. Um, I'm an indoor kid at heart, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's a weird time, but I'm coping. I guess. Yeah, it's not even the being alone, because, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable with that. It's just I'm just starting to kind of pace around my apartment like a tiger a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you and I both, as many people are, are watching movies at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are some new ones. Uh, Believe that, it or that, not, right? <laughs> yep. Two, two of the bigger movies, I would say, that have come directly to streaming platforms during this strange national time. Obviously, I think these are both movies that were originally intended to go to theaters. We, we, we've talked about some films that obviously were um, probably always sort of destined for a streaming or VOD launch, mm-hmm. but these are films that were originally intended to, to go to theaters, and uh, one of them is The Lovebirds. That's the Issa Rae and Kamel Nanjiani romantic action comedy that it was originally supposed to open in theaters uh, via Paramount, but is now on Netflix. And the other one is Capone, which is Josh Trank's film about an aging Al Capone starring Tom Hardy in grotesque makeup. Let's uh, let's talk first about The Lovebirds. Well, the funny thing about The Lovebirds is um, The Lovebirds was one of the very first films to kind of have its um, hopes dashed by the COVID crisis because it was supposed to play at South by Southwest. Yeah. There's something uh, I have to say that uh, watching the film last night, there was something very ominous about seeing Netflix and then Paramount. <laughs> that order, you know, like mm-hmm. first the Netflix logo comes up and then the Paramount order, uh, logo comes up. I mean, obviously, uh, Paramount sold the film to Netflix when it became clear that they were not going to uh, be able to open this in theaters. Mm-hmm. They just sort of cut their losses on it and said, well, we'll make a profit that way. But I that feels like a very it, I, I don't, I'm not sure I've seen that yet. I guess maybe with the Cloverfield film that might have happened, but uh, seeing seeing that progression of logos uh, feels like an like an an omen for the future that made me a little uneasy. Well, I mean, I have to confess I wasn't uh, looking too closely, but what about, like, The Irishman? Well, The Irishman... That would have yeah. a Netflix logo on it. Well, it absolutely would, but my point was uh, my point was more that... Yeah, because, like, The Irishman, was that just pure Netflix? Just Netflix purely paid for it? Or, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, The Irishman had... There was other studio interest for a while, but mm. ultimately what happened was that uh, The Irishman ended up going to, to Netflix as a production because of the amount of money that it was going to cost. A lot of other studios... There was some early interest, but a lot of other studios passed on it because of the amount of money Scorsese was asking for. <laughs> yeah. But so, Netflix does... I mean, as far as they're concerned, money isn't real. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I've heard some stats about Netflix being billions of dollars in debt that just 
just blow my mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think their whole strategy at this point is to, I think they're trying to be the industry leader in streaming platforms and to largely, uh, I think, muscle out a lot of their competition. But mm-hmm. what they're doing is they're spending enormous amounts of money on acquisitions and on production. And uh, I'm not sure they've they've posted a profitable, a, t- a technically profitable year in, in quite some time because of this strategy. The thing that I have mixed feelings about is Netflix kind of wants to be a video store, a TV studio, a TV uh, network, and a film studio all at the same time. And that sort of um, consolidation always makes me a little bit uneasy. I guess that's what I mean when I say that I, I, found, I found it a little ominous because um, I, I can I can envision a future where all of our movies come from one place and that's Netflix mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. scares me a little bit. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Essentially, a small handful of people are deciding what the culture is, is what you, what you yes, mean. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but The Lovebirds was not developed for Netflix. It was developed for Paramount. I do think that watching the film, I think it plays perfectly well at home. Um, I don't think uh, this is something that needed necessarily. To, I mean, again, we've talked about this many times before on the show, but I do feel like most movies play better on the big screen, and I couldn't tell you how this plays on the big screen because I haven't seen it that way. But uh, I will say that it at no point watching The Lovebirds did I think, wow, I really wish this. I could see this particularly this particular set piece on the biggest mm-hmm. screen possible. I was like, this this works perfectly well from the comfort of your home. Those thing- lowered expectations might even kind of benefit it in some respects. Oh, yeah. Well, that kind of reminds me of one thing I, you know, sometimes when a film is set in a city, it's a really integral part of the story. You know, New York's a character in the movie, to use the mm-hmm. cliche. But um, I kind of got the impression they filmed this one in New Orleans because everyone thought it would be fun to live in New Orleans for a couple of <laughs> I mean, I would imagine it's probably a matter of tax incentives, isn't it? You know, I mean, you, can, you can probably too. film there for cheaper. The, the too, city it, is completely irrelevant to this film. From last summer, I was in New Orleans and I talked to a couple of people in the film industry there and they said the tax incentives in Louisiana are not as good as they used to be, actually. So they're losing a lot of production to Georgia. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but it is set in New Orleans. That I think that comes up once or twice in dialogue. There's a, <laughs> yeah. a joke about New Orleans being the, the food capital of the world or something. But otherwise, uh, it, it, it can honestly, this could be set in any American city. No, any city. Yeah. Like there, there will be background revelers every once in a while, but there's no real reason why it needs to be in New Orleans. <laughs> totally. So Ray and Nanjiani, who are both, I, I guess, I guess you could, uh, they're both comedians and they both have had uh, tenures on successful HBO series. Mm-hmm. They uh, they basically play this couple that's uh, going through what appears to be the final stages of their relationship. They're they're in sort of things are winding down for them. Their the relationship clearly isn't working. One of the I thought one of the the sort of more likable touches of the film I would say is that it opens with with them meeting. They're, they're like sort of coming out of a out of a hookup and they have this nice morning and we we, we meet them at the very beginning of their relationship when everything seems great and then we cut ahead four years to this argument they're having yeah I, I also enjoyed that uh, that touch there yeah it was one of those one of those dates that uh, maybe you didn't intend for it to be a date but then the next day you're like eh, let's just make this a date <laughs> right right you get, you know I mean I think that the two of them are, are, are really good together I think that we get a sense watching them and, I, and I, this is one of those things where I wonder how much of this is uh, good for the movie or bad for the movie because we get a 
get a sense watching them, even in this this first fight they're having, that these two have chemistry. So mm-hmm. I think that that helps plant a seed because I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that maybe the the the, the fact that this relationship could be ending, maybe that's not a certain thing by the end of the movie. But I think that's pretty much to be expected in a romantic comedy. There's going to be some push pull of are they really going to break up? That's, right, especially that's, one called the Lovebirds. Yeah, you know? that's part of the deal, and it's not a spoiler to say they're breaking up because that's sort of the inciting incident of the film is they're having a big relationship ending argument and that's what throws them into the main plot is that they're not paying attention to the road while they drive. <laughs> yeah. But I think that uh, they, there's enough of a spark of chemistry between them mm-hmm. even when they're supposed to be at their low point as a couple that I think in one sense that's smart of the movie to to not... I mean, if, if, if these two were too toxic even in those early scenes, I don't think we'd be, we, we would root for them at all. Exactly. Exactly. You know? We would be like, just just fucking break up already, you know? But it, the movie does give you a spark that, like, even at their low point, these two do seem like they have... The, that they might be compatible. But oh, the problem definitely. with that, too, is that there's a part of me that feels like that they're likable enough together and have enough of a rapport, even during their fights, that it's it's a little hard for me to buy that these are two people who are really completely sick of each other. You know? Oh, well, I mean, I sort of... I felt like the romantic chemistry was important because, it, like you said, it does make you root for them to get back together. And part yeah. of the plot of, you know, a movie like this one is that there's going to be some back and forth, right? And there are certain moments where they're fighting, but then, you know, their faces get close and they almost kiss and stuff like that. And I think that it's more important that you believe that they really are about to kiss than you believe that they really hate each other, if that makes sense. Because, like, even when a relationship turns bad, the reason why people stay in bad relationships is because there is still some sort of spark there. Like, there's a reason to try to make it work. And so I think the romantic chemistry was was pretty much an unequivocal good in that way. That makes sense. They end up uh, hitting a pedestrian on a bike... And that plunges them into this uh, this kind of zany criminal plot where they suddenly find themselves intersecting with... There's a... Yeah, it's sort of an esoteric crime thing. It's a blackmail ring involving, um, you know, prominent uh, personages, uh, congresspeople and the like. So their car ends up commandeered by uh, what appears to be a dirty cop. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a question of a hit and run. They end up fleeing the scene um, because somebody ends up dead not by their own fault um, and basically the two of them find themselves sort of bumbling into this this cr- this potential cr- criminal conspiracy and this murder mystery uh, to clear their own names potentially uh, I don't want to belabor too much of the specifics of this plot because I don't think the movie belabors them <laughs> no this is a movie that's all about it's all about the dialogue and specifically the dialogue as delivered by these two stars to each other yeah I would go as far to say that this is rather indifferently plotted, mm. which uh, does not strike me necessarily as a, as a good thing when you're dealing with a film that wants to at least partially be a murder mystery. There are definite like uh, there are definite um, shades of of Manhattan murder mystery, the Woody Allen film from the early '90s. Uh, you sort of have these two characters who are reinvigorating their relationship by getting involved in this uh, in in this potential murder mystery. Um, I also sort of thought of the classic comedies of remarriage a little bit watching this because yes, uh, you know you have two, so. two characters who 
uh, are sort of potentially bumbling back into love through these comedic circumstances. I just thought that this thing, as a piece of screenwriting, was um, so perfunctory at times. I mean, you can tell there are moments you can tell are improvised. It's a modern comedy. A lot of modern comedies let sort of let their stars off the leash and let them riff. But to me, it all it almost felt like the, the plotting was improvised at times with how slapdash it was in terms of getting them from one place to another. It gave me new appreciation for something like Game Night, which is a comedy from a couple years ago, which uh, I liked. I thought was a bit over overpraised by some by some critics. But I but that movie at least put some thought into the intricacy of of it of its suspense plot. This thing, it, it this is one of those movies where it never seems like these characters are actually in any real danger, even though they're stumbling into very dangerous situations. Well, it's funny you mentioned Game Night, because I would put this solidly in the middle, because uh, there's another film of this type called Keeping Up with the Joneses mm-hmm. that uh, is, uh, I'd say, worse than this one in, in all the regards that you're speaking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't say it is the bottom of the barrel in terms of this very specific plot which has gotten very popular in the past like five years or so the idea of an ordinary couple stumbling into violent death basically you know and crime and the sort of underworld through no fault of their own it's such a popular trope in recent years it's very strange but um just to back up for a second, uh, you mentioned I I kind of like when these movies go relatively light on the action. And so the perfunctory nature of this whole uh, kind of crime plot didn't bother me as much because I was thinking it more as a comedy of remarriage, as you put it, as a screwball, like with uh, Ray Nanjiani as a sort of central screwball couple. And in that situation, uh, you know, even a movie like His Girl Friday, does anybody remember like the specifics of the story they're reporting on in His Girl Friday? No, you remember the specifics of their relationship. And so this movie is, it's not on the level of His Girl Friday, obviously. That's one of my favorite films of all time. But it's along the same lines and that makes me personally inclined to be a little more forgiving about the plotting because it's barely, like, it is perfunctory. It's there because you have to have something to keep the story going. (laughs) I guess I just feel like if, if the movie doesn't really care that much about this thriller backdrop that they're creating, then why have it? I mean, why not just make it a comedy about these two people trying to trying to work through their relationship? Maybe that's less fun. I don't know. I just felt like... It's, uh, it's more Woody Allen, for sure. It's more like New York movies about people arguing in a room. is very. Yeah. It's a very specific style of comedy. You know, you could even call sort of inching towards mumblecore in the extreme version of that and you know i'm i'm not saying that a comedy has to have you know like it doesn't have to be that extreme of a plot but i don't think that it trying to have a plot was necessarily a negative in itself (laughs) yeah i just don't think that this thing works at all in in the moments when it's trying to be this kind of zany crime comedy i thought those moments all struck me as really false honestly there's a there's a scene where they're potentially going to be tortured where they, they have been captured by some bad people and i just bought not a single moment of that scene i didn't buy the character's choices i didn't buy the bad guys in that scene i didn't i didn't i never felt a credible sense of terror about in the case of that scene potentially being scalded by 
by boiling hot like um bacon boiling grease. hot grease yeah bacon grease i didn't buy a single thing about it and uh it reminded me of a of, of like a sketch comedy it reminded me of like 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 a moment from a sketch comedy show that isn't taking its premise seriously at all and i think there's just a, there's a few too many of those throughout this film mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that scene in particular that you're talking about, I think that was actually like the one of the weakest parts of the film because it was very similar to a lot of wacky circumstance scenes that you see in movies like Keeping Up with the Joneses. For me, actually, though, uh, the, the part about the plotting that I was dissatisfied with was that to me, this film really ran out of steam about an hour in and it's an hour and a half long movie. And so that's kind of a long time for it to just sort of wind down. Well, I think that speaks, to, again, to the, the plot of this thing not being uh, particularly relevant. Uh, I, I feel like we should mention, too, that this is this is the second film that uh, Camille Nanjiani has made with Michael Showalter. He directed The Big Sick, a movie from a few years ago, a romantic comedy, sort of uh, Nanjiani's first big screen starring role. It was up for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, uh, the script he wrote with his, uh, with his spouse, Emily V. Gordon. I would recommend that people not go into The Lovebirds with uh, expectations that this this is going to be nearly as as poignant or or as sharp as that film was. Uh, the script, which is uh, written by several people, Aaron Abrams, Brendan Gall, and Martin Garrow, is uh, a, a lot more perfunctory than the one uh, in The Big Sick. I well, say. sure. I mean, that was based on like a true story in their real life. Mm. So, of course, it's going to be more emotionally resonant. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, you know, I agree with you that like the plotting of this movie and all of that was, was very perfunctory. It's just there to be there. But for me, I ended up on the positive side because I feel like uh, Issa Rae and Camille Nanjiani are, were such, they had really great chemistry and they both really seemed to be enjoying sort of doing the back and forth, uh, you know, banter, the witty dialogue throughout the film. And um, it was the plotting that ultimately, like as the film went on and the film got more and more complicated, they were still putting in the same amount of effort being charming. But I feel like as the film got more convoluted around them, the uh, the effect of the jokes, like the jokes didn't seem as lively or sprightly as the movie really got into the weeds in terms of the plot. Yeah, I mean, I, li- I liked them both a lot. I think they're, they're a very charming couple. I think that both of them are, are, are very... Uh very charismatic comic actors. Uh, the Big Sick again, I think, proved that Nanjiani was uh, a, a very, a, a very agreeable romantic lead. I think they're both they're both good in this. I, I I have fun watching them. I just kind of wish they had made a better comedy for them. We are the real Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams and I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg and uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of The Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why The Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are The Real Brady Bros. 
So the the other film that we're going to talk about today, it's a very different film. <laughs> yes. That would be Josh Trank's Capone. Capone, I think I read somewhere that it was one of the top rented uh, new titles last week. Uh, people are mm-hmm. finding this movie. People love because... Tom Hardy. That's right. They do. And Hardy is playing the famous gangster Al Capone. I, I sort of feel like that he, he was sort of born to play Al Capone. Hardy has played a lot of uh, real and fictional ga- gangsters over the course of his career. He sort of made a living playing tough and deranged men. Mm-hmm. That's his <laughs> specialty, yeah. It's definitely his specialty. Is Also men who it's impossible to tell what they're saying, so there's a lot of that in this too. <laughs> oh, it's even more so than usual. Yeah. Although I'm just... At least going... that makes sense in this case. I <laughs> oh, mean, at yes. least there's an explanation for not being able to tell what the, what the hell he's saying in any given moment, you know? Yeah. Let me give a disclaimer real quick for... Uh, perhaps this is shallow, but I feel it is important information. If you're watching this movie because you think Tom Hardy is attractive it's not a good choice <laughs> it's true you're not getting a hot a hot tom hardy in this one no because <laughs> uh, I, I, mean, I have a friend who will remain anonymous who you know really likes tom hardy and uh, they texted me and said hey should i watch capone and i said uh not for the reason that you would watch capone buddy <laughs> <laughs> well because so i mean hardy is playing uh he's playing al capone at the end of his life the, the film is set in the in the late 40s uh it's after al capone was uh, was convicted of, of of tax fraud basically mm-hmm. um, you know the, the, for years the, uh, the the federal government tried to get him on on something a little more significant than tax fraud like the many murders that he was involved in and a lot of the more violent crime but it, it was finally it was uh, it was tax it was it was um, financial crimes that they were able yeah. to get him tax evasion tax evasion yeah so he spent uh, he spent you know ar- around a decade behind bars I looked this up actually. Okay. Yeah, I believe that was in 1931 that they finally got him for tax evasion, and he was sentenced to 11 years, but he only served eight because while he was in prison, the syphilis that he had had since he was a teenager started uh, getting into its late stages, and when syphilis, uh, untreated syphilis is in its late stages, uh, it comes with a lot of dementia-type symptoms. Mm -hmm. So the movie is set after he's been released. He is living uh, the last few years of his life in Florida, and this, this... this giant opulent estate in Florida. He's uh, he's losing his mind at that point because of, because of the syphilis and the dementia it's causing. Uh, so he becomes this kind of he becomes this kind of Charles Foster Kane figure. He's just sort of lurching <laughs> yeah. lurching around this big mansion, thinking back on his life. I will say one thing though, and I think we'll get into more of whether or not this movie works or not. But uh, for me, one thing that's that feels like a limitation of the film is uh, it's clear that the movie it wants to be this study of Capone looking back on. His his life and uh, kind of lost in some of his memories, lost in his dementia. But as a study of somebody uh, facing, sort of facing his life of crime and, and looking at looking at his life, it, it can't really operate in a very sophisticated way because Capone at that point was was losing his grasp on reality completely. And as depicted in this film, it's not like this is not a film about somebody who can really reckon with with his sins because he's he's like too far gone to even know to even know what's going going on from minute to minute, you know? Yeah, he shows little flashes of someone will say something to him and he'll say yes or no as if he understands the question. But mostly 
mostly he seems to not really know where he is most of the time. Yeah, and, he's not a lucid character at all. Yeah, no, not, a, not at all. And he uh, deteriorates quite a bit over the course of the film, too. Yeah, and I think that that, that, that has some dramatic limitations, one would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the movie mostly unfolds from his perspective. We get long stretches. There's a stretch in the middle where the movie kind of turns into The Shining, where he's kind of, yeah. um, you I, know. I wrote in my notes that this was the Ready Player One portion of the film, because we just descend into a Shining-esque fantasy world for, you know, a, a pretty long period of time. What is it, probably 10 minutes out of the film? Yeah. Yeah. Characters sort of appear who it, it becomes clear later on may, might not actually be there. Um, he's sort of imagining various figures from his life, these sort of ghosts that are appearing to him in, in a sense. The film so doesn't do a great job at de- delineating this. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is partially the point. I mean, I think they want us to, to sort of, we're sort of sharing his uh, subjective space through a lot of the movie. Although I will say not all of it. It's not totally consistent on that point. There yeah. are plenty of scenes where we cut to somebody who, it's not like the movie is like early Early on is like we're going to lock into this character's vantage. This whole movie is going to take place from his kind of fractured, unreliable point of view. There are plenty of scenes where he's not in them and we're just seeing characters, the, the people on the periphery of, of his life, w- without hit, w- not through, through his lens. So it's not like there's a consistent perspective necessarily. Yeah, I would have um, I would have admired the the chutzpah of committing to a fully first person inside the mind of, you know, someone losing grip on reality type of perspective. Agreed. I think that would have been potentially more interesting. Yeah. And I for me, the 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 fact that we are shifting between first and third person perspective throughout the movie actually kind of I had a really hard time wrapping my head around what this movie was supposed to what the movie wanted me to be feeling watching it. Um, At first, I have to admit that I you know, giggled like a little kid. I was just like, what is this? This is, this is ridiculous. This is just too much. Like what, is this supposed to be a drama? I don't understand. (laughs) But there are, but there are a few moments in it that do kind of work as horror. And so if Josh Trank was going for like deep pathos, you know, like tour de force performance kind of drama, I think that he fell pretty far short. But if he was going for sort of hybrid disorienting, you know, horrific experience about how terrifying it is to lose, you know, your grip on reality for you and for everybody around you, then he he did that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I agree that there's a lot of stuff in this that uh, you might recoil from um, just sort of seeing a man's mind and body go. I mean, uh, the Capone that we see in this movie, it, we should emphasize this again, is not the fearsome gangster of legend. Very infrequently in this film do we even, I mean, he still has the temper and and because he's played by Tom Hardy, he still has a certain intimidating presence. Yeah. But in a lot of respects, he is somebody who is completely, he's, he's gone. He's gone. Even yeah. though he's alive, he's gone. And that is... I, I think it's it's I think for everyone it's disturbing to see somebody at that stage in their life and 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 again the Capone we see in this movie he he shits his pants without yeah control. multiple times he yeah it, it sort of seems to be his move when someone is uh, saying something he doesn't like he shits his pants to get yeah. him to stop. <laughs> Do you think it's motivated like that? I think it was just kind. Of, I think he just could, does not at this tell. point in his life has no bowel control. 
I could not tell. There was so much about this movie where I was just like, is that what you were going for? I truly do not know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that it's an interesting, maybe it's an it maybe it's an experiment in empathy in some respects because we we are basically asked to look at this person. So, I mean, it sort of dubbed public enemy number one. So, you know, he's one of the most notorious gangsters in American history, one of the notorious criminals in American history. And, and we're seeing him at his lowest point. And I think that the film, I think there's maybe a little bit of dark humor in seeing a figure who is sort of the uh, the embodiment of of fearsome lawlessness at in such a vulnerable position. I also think that it plays a little bit with our sympathies. Like, are we to what degree do, do we do we watch this man who, by, by all by all accounts, probably deserves a reckoning? To what degree can we feel can can we feel sympathy for somebody who's going through this because he's going through something that so many people will eventually? I mean, all of our all of our minds and bodies will betray us. You know. Here it's showed in such a spectacular fashion that that's what I mean when I say that the the horror elements are fairly effective. Like, for example, the makeup that Tom Hardy wears is very grotesque. And as drama, it's, in my opinion, too overplayed to really work. You know, they really like lean into the drooling and the shitting and the, the mumbling and not being able to form a coherent sentence and that kind of stuff. And um, in makeup and in performance, but, you know, they really, they put a few extra layers of drool in there, I, I suppose <laughs> is my point. And for me, like when you look at it as horror, to, then the grotesqueness of it works in its favor as opposed to against the um, sort of like it's it's too off-putting to really make you make me feel much empathy, you know, when you add that on top of the character being a very unsympathetic person. But when but if you look at it as like a monster, then that kind of works for me. Yeah, you said that like the movie almost opens with him as as like Frankenstein. As Frankenstein, basically. yeah, it opens yeah. with him basically as Frankenstein, where he's this big lumbering figure with I think it's a fire poker in his hand, chasing children throughout a yard, going rah 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 rah, yeah. and he does that sort of. And there are a couple times in the movie where he does, uh, there's one point where he's startled and he kind of, you know, does the same thing where he kind of lumbers and waves his arms around like Frankenstein when he sees fire. It's uh, the physicality of it had a very, and I, we should be saying Frankenstein's monster. Please don't email. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I understand. I should have been saying Frankenstein's monster the whole time, but the physicality of it is very did have a Frankenstein's monster element to it. This is kind of one of those films where it's I feel like you would need to talk to the director but or it's a question of intentionality. Like what were they intending for it to be? Was it was he supposed to be reminiscent of Frankenstein's monster or was that uh, an accident? that I'm reading into. Do you know what I'm saying? I doubt it's an accident. I mean, I think that, um, I think that the horror elements in this are, uh, foregrounded a lot. A um, lot. Yeah. And, and there's that element in Trank's work already. I mean, so, so the, the filmmaker is, is, uh, Josh Trank. He both directed the film and wrote the screenplay. Uh, Trank is famous. Some might say infamous now for his involvement in the Fanta- the last fantastic four movie. That was a very rocky production. And the end result, I would say, uh, bears the mark of a very troubled production, uh, widely disliked, a, a huge flop, and uh, if you know, if rumors are to be believed, uh, the, the way that that production went, it lost him 
he originally was attached to, to direct a one of the Star Wars spinoff films and then lost that gig. Mm-hmm. So Trank, uh, I mean, if, if you looked at that moment in his career a few years ago, it looked it looked very possible like his career might be over. And I think one of the things, uh, one of the more interesting lens to, to, to look at this movie through is as a story of somebody who felt like he was on top of the world, but has now f- like fallen very far from grace and is sort of sort of dealing with the mess that his life has become. Um, hmm. And I, I think it's interesting to look at the movie through that lens um, because I, I do think there's probably something a little personal in this and, and a little personally bitter. Hmm. I think this is a pretty bitter film in some respects. And Well, it's definitely, there's definitely something, um, at the very least, it's cynical. Possibly yeah. mean-spirited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what it comes down to is, I think you're right that this doesn't entirely work as drama. And I think a big part of it is that Hardy doesn't really have a character to play. I mean, it, it, it's... As with many of his performances, it's it's an amazing physical transformation. Yeah. And I'll give him some credit because, you know, I mean, you want to talk about a, a movie star. Tom Hardy is a big movie star and he does have this sort of like hunk image. But in this one, he he walks around wearing a diaper, you know. Like he he wears an adult diaper and he drools and he 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 really um, debases himself physically for the role. So I'll give him credit for that. He does, and 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 I admire the commitment to that. And yes, exactly. I do think the the best reason to watch this film, uh, to my mind, undeniably, is is to see him in this role. Mm. I just think I ended up watching it and kind of wishing that um, it, it's interesting because this is this is one of this is this is one of those biopics that looks exclusively at a very small sliver of a person's life, which I think is generally a smart strategy instead of trying to dramatize all of a life, you know. Mm-hmm. But they've picked a chapter of his life that is not just like, fairly uneventful, but uh, also one that doesn't that doesn't much allow him doesn't much afford the actor much to play. I mean, he he is essentially just doing the the late stages of of dementia and syphilis here, and so you end up with a drama where who Capone is, um, and, and I think this is very much by design, but I, I do think it's patet perhaps detrimental we get no sense of who Capone is because he's right. gone at that right point. It, it's one of, it's one of those things that sort of relies on your knowledge of the backstory of who Al Capone was to inform a lot of those aspects of the film exactly there's no exposition I mean, we don't get we don't get flashbacks or we get very 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 short ones and the movie doesn't provide much and maybe you don't need that for a figure as famous as Al Capone I, I, I can imagine a version of this where I'd be complaining about too much like <laughs> do we really need more flashbacks to this it's Al Capone we get it but I have to say that I thought a lot about the Irishman watching this film yeah yeah well it is sort of like David Cronenberg's The Irishman in some ways <laughs> <laughs> yeah I like that well, because but the thing about the Irishman is that there are those who have complained that the film is too long. They're they're crazy and wrong for starters. <laughs> but uh, beyond that, like all of that time that we spend with Frank Shireen, with that character, until the, that that enormously powerful last chapter of the movie, it's all about providing a degree of context for those right. late scenes. Exactly. We have seen a whole life, so we have all that information in our head. In Capone, we're denied 
any real sense of uh, Capone's life. It's all it's all abstracted, or it's all uh, left to it's all left to the viewer to to just to just have that information about him. But that there's no dramatic context for the, these last few years of his life. It, it, it plays very archetypal, in my opinion. Um, and uh, I think that I found myself thinking that this might be a better movie, actually, if we did get some glimpse of what Capone's life was like before these these pathetic final days. Well, even in the yeah, even in the um, the the uh, flashbacks, we don't see much about his life. You know, it's all these very abstracted images of like you know nightclubs and gun malls and you know guys in trucks with Tommy guns, but there's no specificity to that at all. And that sort of feeds into you know to go back to what I was saying, the character as a monster. He's a monster mm-hmm. in a haunted house, you know, and he he, he frightens children and. <laughs> And, you know, and and maybe uh, that is a statement of condemnation on Al Capone a little bit. You know, it's sort of one of those things where it's like it's like when Charles Manson died, there was sort of some debate about how to eulogize someone like Charles Manson. You don't write a regular eulogy, right? And a lot of conversation, we had a conversation about this at AV Club too, and we ended up deciding that the best way to eulogize someone like Charles Manson is to not say anything at all because what they want is attention, right? And so and and, and so in a gangster like Al Capone, if what he wants to be feared, the film is making him into this like he he's a monster but also like kind of a repulsive pathetic figure at the same time. And so there may be an element of uh breaking down the myth in that, I think. All right, well that's all we've got for you today. Uh you can check out The Lovebirds on Netflix starting Friday, May 22nd, and then Capone is available for digital purchase or rental. In the meantime, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Next week, we'll be back with a new episode. We're going to be talking about The Vast of Night. It's a low-budget science fiction movie coming soon to Amazon Prime. Definitely worth taking a look at. And we're also going to do something a little off-format. We're going to talk about the long-running Fox television series, The X-Files. Another uh, study of UFOs and alien (laughs) culture, etc. Looking forward to doing that. Yeah, it's a personal favorite show of both of ours, I think. Uh, Have a good one, folks. Bye.